They began to make merry. I, I love that line. I think it captures so much of, of the story, and I think it captures so much of the Christian faith. In fact, I think in many ways this should be the posture of all of us as Christians. Making merry. Making merry. We are, after all, Easter people, right? Easter is the great feast, the great celebration. Easter is sort of the entirety of our faith. For if there is no Easter, there is no Christianity. Right? So we are Easter people. And because of that, we can make merry even when the circumstances of this world would suggest a dirge. Now, I'm, of course, I'm aware a dirge is all this world seems to demand. No one here, I, I know most everyone here, some I don't, but I'm sure you've lived in this world for any amount of time. You don't need to be reminded of how brutal this world can be. Betrayal, pain, sickness, death, despair, sorrow seem to be companions of all of us. And oftentimes it can feel as though we're Crucifixion Friday people instead of Easter people. As though we are more often walking through the valley of the shadow of death than we are sitting at the great feast of our Savior. And when the darkness is not visiting us personally, it's all around us. Puerto Rico, Las Vegas, California, the Korean Peninsula, Paris, Houston, Syria, friends with cancer, families torn apart. It can overwhelm us with grief, exhaust us with misery, demoralize us with burden. But as Easter people, it is then, exactly then, we must trust most of all. It's exactly then we must be most purposeful in making merry. I wonder if sometimes the pain, in the pain and suffering and hardships of living in this messed up world, we have trouble making merry because maybe we have forgotten what God has really done for us. Maybe we've been listening to it so much for so long, we've just really forgotten what he's done for us. Or maybe we have never really trusted what he has done for us because we can't trust he loves us. Maybe because we are so busy trying to transact with him and trying to appease him, which is the great curse of humanity, the need to appease God. And I'm sorry that if in your Christian journey, like in my Christian journey, there have been times Christianity has supported that lie. That you have to appease God and be good enough for God. I'm sorry. But maybe we're so busy trying to appease Him, we have no energy and freedom to celebrate Him and His incredible love for us. But here in our story, they began to make merry in full celebration of the Father's love. They began to make merry. In one of the liturgical books of the Church of England, there is a prayer that echoes this story, and it begins like this. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. I love that. It's a great prayer. I need to get that part of our liturgy. And that truth that he has brought us all home must be allowed to seep deep inside our souls, for this is the stuff of making merry. As Richard Simpson writes, 
We press on and we keep our eyes on the prize and we strain forward and by God's grace we don't let our sadness paralyze us. This is what we Christians do. Where there is sadness, we sow joy. We do our work and hug each other even in hard weeks and especially then. Yes, the world is full of hatred, but we sow seeds of love. Yes, the world is full of injury, but with God's help we offer pardon. And yes, there is plenty of discord in the world. But where there is discord, we sow union. It's what we do. It's who we are. We seek reconciliation and healing, and we listen, and we bear one another's burdens. Where there is doubt, we sow faith, and where there is despair, we become defiant hopers. That is my, one of my most favorite things I've ever read. I just read this this week. And defiant hopers. That's what Easter is. That's what we are, Easter people. When the world is going to hell, we can't join that dirge because we're Easter people and we become defiant hopers. And when our friends are losing their faith because there's seemingly no chance the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit are ever going to show up, like that old Don McLean song, they took the last train for the coast, it seems. We can't go there and we be stay defiant hopers because that's what Easter is. And where there is darkness, we refuse to curse the darkness. We light candles from Newtown to Las Vegas. Why? Because we trust that the light continues to shine in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We let the light shine because we are an Easter people. And even when it feels like Crucifixion Friday, we let our light shine so others can find their way. Amen. That's what Christianity is all about. And they began to be merry. Oh. Except, of course, for one. So I dragged up this old video. It's Tyus Frank and Father the Parable, where the old son is not making merry like everybody else. I hope you enjoy it. We'll need some volume for this year. But his older brothers, he wasn't glad at all. He wasn't glad to see it. No, he was jealous. You know why? Because he didn't think it was fair.
priceless ah the scandal on the stumbling block the offense that is grace grace is not fair it's unfair and the sooner we can come to terms with that truth the sooner we can maybe really start to trust in the God Jesus revealed and if you continue to hold on to theologies or be swayed by theologies that want to make grace fair my suggestion to you is to run as far away from those theologies as you possibly can. Because those are human loopholes. And all they do is destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what words they're wrapped up in. If we at any level are the mechanism of our salvation. And it is not God's grace. That is not the message Jesus Christ taught. That is a self-worshipping message. Which we love to do. So please I just want to encourage you. And now we're going to start looking at the prodigal son. For those that are visiting today, we've been in the prodigal son for six or seven weeks. We've got a few more left. And you can find that all, hopefully online, all the backup uh, story as we've gotten to this place. Be prepared. The next few weeks, the elder son is all of us. So we're, we're all going to be offended at some point over the next couple weeks. But I want, as we start off here, I want you to notice... studied a lot of his parables here at Cain over the years, and he's just brilliant. So he throws in this word here for elder son, and it's not as in the oldest son. What it is, is this is the word that is usually mentioned in connection with the scribes. Okay? This is the word that the scribes are called, and he calls the oldest son that. So who was his audience? Uh, this is probably... Rich, do you mind just being my guy? Because what's happening... Just keep your fingers crossed. I forgot my plug, my power cord, so we're on battery. So I think I was just like, just get us through communion. <laughs> okay, so he's telling the story to the scribes. And he inserts them right into the story. And he's about to get really, really nasty about the scribes in the way he tells this story. I think they missed it. Or maybe they didn't miss it, and that's why they ended up killing him. He was constantly offending the religious leaders. Okay, so he's brilliant. Here is my gentle suggestion. Let's be sure we don't miss this. All right, let's be courageous enough to stay honest and keep looking in the mirror that is the older son. I think it can change our lives. He comes in from the field. Next one, Rich, please. So he comes in from the field. Here's Christ's brilliance again in telling stories. Where was the younger son when he decided to come home? Rich, next one. Thank you. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields. 
and it was in the fields from which the son came home. This is why I call the story the parable of the lost sons. They're both profoundly lost. Christ gave us all this information as he told this parable to know they're both profoundly lost. And we're going to see more of this as we go along. So, coming in from the fields, one more rich. The older son hears the party from a distance. It was definitely merry, all right. I think this is the time. You know when you go to weddings, and now that I'm older, I'm part of that first people that leave, you know. <laughs> you know, you, 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 go to the cer- you go to the ceremony, and, and it's really nice, and, and then you go to the reception, and you're there. It's great, great. The, usually the bar's open for the first half hour, and then you get the hors d'oeuvres, and then you sit for the nice meal, and then, you know, all that. And then now that you're, you, know, you get to my age, you're like, oh, that was wonderful. Let's go now. I'm tired. <laughs> And then the band comes out, and that's when it really gets going. You know, that's the part of the night that when I was younger, no, you stay for that. That's, that's the fun part of the night. Um, band starts to play a little louder. Dancing gets a lot more crazy. People get serious about their merrymaking. <laughs> Father of the bride opens up the bar again for the last half hour. All that stuff. This is serious merrymaking. So he calls over one of the young boys who have gathered in the courtyard. Now, here's the thing. This is interesting. Many translations have this as servants, but... The servants are probably all tending to the guests at the feast. Remember, this is a big party. There's like 200 people there probably at least. They killed a fatted calf. That's 100 pounds of meat at least. So the whole village has been invited. So the servants are in there. The original word here can quite properly be translated as boy, and it makes sense in this story and in this culture and time to understand this. Everyone in the village knew everything that happened, right, to everybody else. So they have watched this entire story play out. They all know what has happened, okay? So no doubt, at this point, just like in our own big celebrations, what do the kids end up doing? They go outside, they hang out. And to one of these, the older son asks, what's going on? Here's the detail to catch that we would miss from our culture. But in this time and space and in this culture, this is what we have to know it would have been expected for the older son to immediately join the party himself. Expected. All right? Remember, this is his estate. When the, we looked at this the first week way back. When the younger son asked for his share of the estate, the father divided it. That was the first death in the story. The father died to his life as he knew it, and he gave up his estate. This is the son's estate, and there's a party going on, and he doesn't go in. So even if he wasn't dressed for the occasion, he should have gone in. He should have welcomed the guests, excused himself to get changed, and then returned. To call a boy over and ask what is going on is indicative of how broken his relationship is with the father. Just like the younger son's relationship is so broken with the father. All right? So Ibn al-Tayyib, the ancient Middle Eastern scholar that I rely on a lot, he writes this about, he asks for the reasons for the banquet as though... The family had no right to set up a banquet in his absence, whereas he should have entered the hall and shared the joy of those who were rejoicing, but he didn't. And so the boy responds, verse 27, understanding this is also vital to grasp because it helps us understand even more what's going on in the older son's mind. Now, I'm not going to get into this extended word study. It's, it's boring and it's dry. So I just want to ask you to trust that I studied this but also know there are many different scholars, brilliant scholars, who disagree on this. But the opinion I side on, all right, and the conclusion I come to, I think is based on very sound academics and exegesis. So first, let me give you a background note. This is not the boy's personal opinion of what has happened. 
That's important. This is not the boy's personal opinion of what has happened. Kenneth Bailey can help us understand this. Kenneth Bailey says, and remember, he lived for 40 years in the villages of the Middle East and telling these stories and listen to the people talk, tell, talk back to him. He would tell these incredible parables that Jesus told, and then he'd listen to the Middle Eastern villages, help him understand, oh, well, that's incredible. Well, there's in that. So this is where all of this incredible information comes from. When important events take place in a traditional Middle Eastern village, in a very few hours, the community mind condenses the incident, and people all across the village report its main outlines in the same manner. The young boy's speech is weighted with meaning, because what he is telling the oldest son is that the father has received the sinner and is in the process of sitting down and eating with him. Wow. So Bailey suggests that verse 27 could read like this. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he recovered him with peace. Now, the English is not incorrect, but the English can be misleading. Because for us, safe and sound what? It's an idiomatic term for us that means someone's physically safe. Right? That's what we say. Yep, we're home after our trip, all safe and sound. People call, how was you? Oh, home safe and sound. Right? That's, that's an idiomatic phrase that loses totally the meaning of what really is going on in this parable. The younger son being home safe and sound is not why the father is throwing this party. We spent the last number of weeks examining the reconciliation, the very costly reconciliation the father has made happen between the son and himself. That's what we've looked at, this incredible grace, the father dying to himself to bring his son back into relationship with him. It is this that the boy is communicating to the older son. You see, if the party was simply because the younger son had returned, physically safe, and there was no mention of being restored back into fellowship, the older son would have went right into the party. Because that would mean the question of what the father was going to do to the younger son was still up for debate. So the older son would have went in and he would have been able to give his opinion of what the punishment should be. And this is huge. And he would have loved that. And being his estate, his opinion would have been carried a lot of weight. He could have punishment, hard labor, paying off debts. The Kazarza ceremony, the cutting off ceremony he probably would have instituted where this young man would never have been welcomed back. But hearing that the father had already forgiven and reconciled the younger son was way too much for the elder brother, and so he refused to go. Next week, we are going to begin exploring what a massive betrayal this was. Again, it's so hard in our culture, you know, if we just don't go into a party that our family's throwing yet, it causes problems, right? If you don't show up at a wedding, and you spoil, that causes problems, but that's not what this is. This is a massive, massive violation of relationship, and we're going to start exploring that next week. We're also going to start learning about the father's amazing response to this betrayal, just like the amazing response he had the younger son's betrayal. That's why we spend so many weeks in the prodigal son. For most of us growing up, if we grew up in church and we heard this story, it's just all about this lost son that comes home because he's sad that he ever left and he's hung. But that's not what the story is about at all. Jesus clearly meant to talk about the two kinds of lostness, which is all of us. And the best part of that is when we're lost, we get found. Right? When we're least, we become, we're, we're saved and made great. And when we're dead, we're resurrected. That's, that's the hope. That's the hope 
we all have. And Jesus wants everyone to know, especially the religious leaders, who of course focused on the younger son, right? Of course, just like we do. Isn't it funny how he, Jesus tells a story to the religious leaders and has to put them in clearly that they're in there, and then 2,000 years later, we're still ignoring all of that and just focusing on the younger son. Right down to when it says, and this son of yours who wasted your money with prostitutes, which we discovered when we studied earlier on, isn't at all what the younger son did with his money. That was just the older son being a jerk and accusing his younger brother of doing something he never did. How often can we be like this? So, for now, let's consider this. It is so easy to stand at a distance, to watch this older son, and instantly judge and criticize him for being selfish, jealous, petty, mean, arrogant, self-righteous. And he's all of those things, and more. We're going to see that as we continue on with the story. However, his actions are a commitment to the truth he believes in. Last week, I had a paragraph and a half that I said, if you've you've been coming to Canaan for any length of time and have never heard anything I say, listen to this one and a half paragraphs. Today, this is one of these lines. Please hear this. His actions are a commitment to the truth he believes in. Think about that. How many actions do we take? Convinced they're absolutely 100% correct. Because it's the truth we believe in. He doesn't believe in grace, so it disgusts him. He is rejecting the Father's way of life. He's not just being a jerk. This is the truth he embraces. Now, we of course imagine, because we know God is a God of grace, that we would never refuse to go into the party if we were the older son. Well, isn't that exactly what we do every time we choose not to forgive? Not to extend mercy? Not to offer grace? Isn't that what we're doing? We're staying outside of the party. At some level, not living grace is evidence of not completely believing in it. Two hard statements in the Bible. Well, there's, what am I talking about? There's like 500,000 hard statements in the Bible. That's why we see the crescent and he sees the whole of the moon. Wasn't that an awesome song? Anyway, I thought it was. One of these statements is, no other name under heaven shall we be saved by except Jesus Christ. That's an incredibly difficult statement, and it's been made more difficult because certain branches of Christianity have used that in very exclusive and transactional and appeasement theology kind of ways. But the reason that statement doesn't bother me anymore is, here's the deal. If grace, if the God Jesus revealed is the only God, and grace is the only way, well, if we don't believe in grace, we're we're never going to reach out to take grace. Do you see what I mean? 
So if grace is the final reality, then yeah, that's it. It's grace. Now, of course, Christianity set themselves up. Later, Christianity set themselves up in such a way to change the whole dynamic of that truth where the early Christians didn't. I think that's why so many people just were flocking to the early Christians because they weren't setting themselves up in such a way. They were just simply living out this truth that, listen, grace is it. If you don't believe in grace, that's sorry. This is the final reality. And they lived it, right? They believed it so much. They didn't believe some propositional truth. They weren't going around the ancient world saying, listen, there's this propositional truth we have to embrace. No, they didn't. They just lived this truth out in the most beautiful ways. They, they didn't say, hey, you know what? We, 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 should, we should sell our belongings and give them to the poor. They didn't go around telling people that. They just did it. They didn't go around saying, listen, when you're about to be martyred in the Colosseum, make sure you're praising and worshiping God. They didn't do it. They just did it. It's like in that song. I love that line. I talked about wings. You just flew. I love that. That's why there's no other name under heaven by which man shall be saved. It's not because you embrace the propositional truth or not. It's because that, it's just grace. Like my favorite theologian, K. Pond, says, listen, the bar's open. If you insist on paying, you're out of luck. I love that. And it's like the second, that second statement I was talking about when Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Well, this is the same idea. This isn't about if you don't forgive, oh, God's mad at you and he's not going to forgive you. No, what he's saying is if you don't forgive, you mustn't believe in forgiveness. And if you don't believe in forgiveness, how do you receive forgiveness? Now, I know it's a lot easier said than done living out, living into grace and living out forgiveness. I get all that. But that's, that, that's, that's what Paul talked about. What I want to do, I don't. What I don't want to do, I do. That. But God understands that battle we have. But at least it starts in, in acknowledging what we believe. The oldest son didn't go into the party because he didn't believe in grace. And he was committed to his truth. What truths are keeping us out of the party? That's what we have to ask ourselves. What is it? What truths are keeping us out of the party? Let's not stay outside the party anymore. Let's believe in grace. Let's receive it. Let's join the merrymaking. Let's live as the Easter people we are. And then let's share that with the world around us. Because the world could use Easter right now. Couldn't it?